Welcome to the Fargo Podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for Fargo and FX. I'm Jim. And I'm Aaron. And tonight we're covering season one, I guess season one, episode six, Burden's Ass. Uh, a lot of stuff happened this episode. Where do we want to start? First, an apology for last week. We got the second deer theory wrong. Uh, Eric kind of floated that out uh, as something he noticed and wondered what significance of that there's two deer bodies. I was a bit confused. Uh, a lot of viewers emailed us in and said that there was no two bodies. There was a patch of blood on the ground, but there's only one deer, the deer in the trunk. So there is no significance to the two deers because it just didn't happen. <laughs> okay. So we retract that. Uh, I also like to start in the beginning. I find that's useful with the meeting of the Fargo mob. And mm-hmm. I guess that's their name. I'm not sure if it's the name of the head dude, the big cheese, if it's the name of the town Fargo that they meet in. Uh, but this is the same kind of Dakota mafia, the trucking company mafia that we've talked about. The Sam Hess is rolled in uh, with. They're trolling me at this fish thing, man. Uh, the fish drop very early in the episode. It's what we open with the credits. One of them gets yanked out of the tank. It gets bludgeoned on the head. It gets descaled, yeah. fried, and served up to this mob boss hole. Mm-hmm. And he sucks the brains out of it. Any... I mean, so there's some metaphor here about these fish minding their own business. They get caught up in this thing, and now they're dead. This guy's eating them whole, mm-hmm. right? Sure. And it seems like he doesn't give a shit. He wants someone to die for the Sam Hess thing. He doesn't care if it's not related to mob violence. He just wants to send the message out there that if you kill one of us, you're going to die, period. Yeah. So is there any... Anything to that other than showing us how implacable? Because Numbers and Wrench have almost been like underworld investigators. At yeah. least, at least Numbers, or I'm sorry, Wrench, the the deaf one, mm-hmm. was paying lip service to making sure they got things right. Sure, make sure yeah. they got the right dude. It seems like the patient at Fargo has worn thin, and he just wants a body. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think your your metaphor is pretty solid. Uh, as far as people getting caught up and, and just dying, because a lot of that has happened. I mean, look at the guy in the trunk. Right. Uh, he he definitely got caught up with it and just dumped into the river. Right. Uh, into the lake. Um, I think there's also, you know, a little bit of foreshadowing here with the fish that rain from the sky at the end. Mm. Uh, they're just pushing that a little bit. Uh, a lot of a lot of fish in this episode. I mean, even the fish poster is prominently featured with the, the bloody fish in the middle. Right. Hiding the hammer. Right. It's pinup style for Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> uh, what, let's, let's talk about Lauren's plot line, because he's kind of the first one that we established after the credits. Okay. And as last we left uh, Spray Tan, he was screwed metaphorically and physically into his pantry. He subsisted off of the diet of apparently croutons and Italian salad dressing. Sure, that's what he's going to serve in his uh, Turkish bath. The Turkish delight. That's why it's so dressing gross. Croutons. It's just mashed up croutons and <laughs> Italian dressing. I my mind was blown because I thought I got a handle on this character. I thought he was some type of gay man who was uh, running some kind of small time con on the grocery store king's wife, the queen, mm-hmm. if you will. And his fondest ambition was to open up a Turkish bath in Minnesota for not the ladies. 
That's what I thought too. To cater to a more masculine clientele. But we find out, I think, very clearly in this episode with you know his his opening lines, his his pickup lines that he's practicing in the pantry, that he's very much after the ladies. Do you think it's a pickup line, or do you, this guy seems almost innocently asexual, like? <laughs> He was genuinely just wanting, hey, ladies, come on in to the Turkish delight. You think? It wasn't, there wasn't anything sleazy about it. I don't know. I see Dennis Reynolds and I always think sleazy. Well, so. yeah, hard not to make that connection. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, Lauren shows up, says, hey, it's showtime. And uh, he's talking a mess about trust being broken and he's doing all the work and he wants a bigger split. Mm-hmm. Lauren doesn't give a shit. He says, make this phone call. Read this thing word for word. All the while, spray tan's like, "Hey, uh, what? Wh- how come there's a newspaper covering all the windows?" Yeah. From that moment, I knew something very bad was going to happen. Yeah, it was it was written all over the walls. And, and it's really amazing how they took this character that I didn't I didn't give two shits about either way. Like I thought he was kind of annoying. He's sort of comic relief. It was funny to watch, you know, Lauren rough ride roughshod over him. Mm-hmm. To by the end of the episode, I felt a lot of pity for. So he makes a phone call to the king. He reads off this script that was basically, again, another reference to the Roman origin mythology about the boys that were, or the boy in this case, that was homeless and starving and wandering from house to house, wanting into that life, uh, wanting why yeah. he has so little and they have so much. And, and you can see the the camera goes to Lauren a couple times and you can see him... Uh, not necessarily a concerned look on his face, but it, some kind of look on his face. And it told me that this was maybe a little bit of his origin story, a little bit of his motivation. Um, the, the story here is, like you said, this kid cold and lonely out in the, the wilderness here. And he sees these other people who are well-fed and warm and inside. And he wants that. Right. And so the wolves come whispering uh, into his ear. And he decides, I think, that he's going to take it. And that's both why Lauren does the things he does when, you know, he tells the kid to piss in the gas tank. Mm. And it's also why he's blackmailing this guy who, for no reason, for none of his own work, has this million dollars and has everything that Lauren feels he doesn't. So are we seeing Lauren's origin story? Are we hearing this state? Is this like a dark version of Oliver Twist? (laughs) I think so. I I think... At some point, we were bound to see it. Right. And I don't feel like we had seen it before this episode. Hmm. Do you think Lester is a parallel in the same way that, you know, a lot of time people say that Pete on Mad Men is a parallel character of Don? He's just a decade or two behind. Do you think that, that 10, 15 years ago, Lorne was a man like Lester? It, it seems likely. In my opinion. It feels um, thematically that's where they're going to me. It, it really does, yeah. Um, especially when you look at the, the fish poster with what if they're wrong and you're right. Um, that has always felt very Lester and Lorne to me from the very beginning. Right. And when we see it in episode one. Um, he's he's certainly exerting influence on Lester. Mm. Um, and I could see him, you know, not necessarily training Lester, but just kind of guiding him along the path that he wants him to go down. You know, when Spray Tan slash Chump uh, met his end, mm-hmm. being duct taped to that exercise equipment, I, I haven't felt dread like that since probably the last time was in Fargo when we saw the Lauren lookalike get shoved into the ice hole. And oh, that yeah. was like quick and brutal, and you didn't have time to fully motion yourself, 
emotionally prepare yourself for. Plus, it's like something I just have a visceral dread of drowning, and drowning in cold water seems even worse. Mm -hmm. This was a slow motion. You could see it coming a mile away. And again, I thought it was amazing that a guy I didn't care about by the end, I was really wincing and like, wow, this is hard to watch. The, you know, the fact that he, you know, he gets, he wakes up and he's, he's tied to this exercise equipment. Lauren puts a shotgun in his hand. Then it's like, well, that's bad. Then he, you see the gun outside the window and he starts taking shots at people. That's even worse. There's the cable rig to the gun. It's, it's, and then by the time he just gets shot up, Sonny Corleone style, I felt really bad for the character. Sure. Yeah. Uh, not a character I thought I would ever give a shit about, like you said. A lot of evidence, we've talked about what, or tried to get to the bottom of what Lorne's moral code is, you know, mm -hmm. what his center. And in this episode, we saw some more evidence. When he was shooting into the crowd randomly, he didn't like Jack Bauer style kneecap people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or much less kill them. He was shooting at inanimate targets and just causing chaos. But he used spray tan as a, just a pure distraction. The only thing a spray tan really did was again, run this low rent, uh, blackmail operation against the Kings against the King. Yeah. Is that enough in Lauren's mind to warrant a death sentence? Do you think if spray tan, would he have used an innocent person as bait or does, did they have to do something wrong before he can judge them and condemn them to death? Man, that's a tough question to answer because I don't feel like, the kid in the parking lot who pissed in the tank pisser, I don't feel like he got, he gave any evidence that he was a bad kid and Lauren just fucked with him. Well, but he also didn't force him to do anything. He just like, he was the uh, sure. wolf whispering in his ear. Yes, he was. He, he did not duct tape the kid to the gas, the kid's dick to the gas tank. Right. Uh, <laughs> and make him drink water until nature <laughs> took its course. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think in Lauren's mind, anybody who does anything that they shouldn't have kind of deserves it. Mm. Yeah, I. it's just, wow, how capricious that sense of justice is. And also, it's interesting that it's the next day, neither Gus nor his neighbor had come to any harm. Mm. Yeah, Lauren never came back to uh, sneak in the second story window. Right, or do anything other than make an idle threat. I wonder yeah. if his idle threats to innocent people are just that. It could be. I mean, he threatened Gus to get his way, to get out of this situation. Right. Uh, I don't I don't know what his morality on threatening is. It seems like he'll do it willy-nilly. Sure. So then we get to, you know, we're going to set aside the king to talk about next. Um as he's listening to this on his police radio, he gets into an Anton Sugar-style car crash, which is wrenching numbers here to uh, deliver some some mob-style justice, some Fargo mob-style justice. Yeah. Did you have a problem with them finding Lorne? So when they questioned Lester mm -hmm. in the jail cell about, mm -hmm. about Lorne, and he gave him the name Lorne Malvo, it seemed like the, the numbers had recognized that name. And probably knew what he looked like. That seems incredible that he would check in using his real name or official mob alias. What do you mean check in? He checked into the hotel under the name Lorne yeah. Malvo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think they went back and traced that. I think what they did is nope. it's a fucking small town. Right. And they went and they looked for him. They found him at some point and they tailed him. 
I mean, clearly they all know each other in this small community. That's what I think, yeah. I just thought it was – it seems like Lorne used his real official – you know, underworld name on at least one or two occasions. And that sure. seems sloppy of him. And I don't, I don't know about that. doesn't really ruin the, the television show. Uh, I thought the shootout in the snow was awesome. Fantastic. I mean, the way they shot that, uh, I have actually seen one of these kind of whiteout conditions yep, before, sure. uh, at least once they do happen. And that's uh, just I know in people... Indiana. I mean, yeah, north you go up of the north. wall in, in Minnesota. God, God help you. Yeah, it I think does this happen. Is, this is basically September through March. Yeah, up, up north. Yeah, yeah, you just can't see a thing. Pretty, pretty much. Uh, so it wasn't implausible to me at all. I thought it actually looked really, really cool. And that this show has the balls to blank out everything on screen for a good long while. I mean, it was right. 10, 10, 15 minutes of the show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that takes some guts, I think, on the part of the filmmakers. Uh, and it also... I don't know if people got this, but I think this is construed as the ninth plague, the darkness. Ooh. It completely, I mean, it becomes, in, in the story of Pharaoh and right. Moses, Right. Uh, the ninth plague is darkness, and people have to feel their way around. They can't see anything around them. It felt very much like that here, except just very bright and very white. In fact, I want to say that it wasn't, the darkness is kind of how we as English speakers say it, but I think in the Bible it talks about thick gloom or something like that. Hmm. So it's, okay. it's... Like fog? Yeah, or I mean just the fact that you can't see. Uh, and it was something that didn't affect the Israelites' house. Yeah, yeah. Which I wonder if there is something at the end when the sun kind of brightened up on his son. It didn't seem to affect Lauren very much. Yeah. He was moving like a... Yeah, whirlwind through that. In fact, he used the fact that you know this bright red color, his blood. He 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 gave himself a little cut and dribbled a blood trail to the door. It was one, two, three. I don't know if there's any significance to that. Hmm. Um, but lured wrench. No, I'm sorry, numbers. I get him confused. Lured numbers over there and then uh, brutally murdered him yeah. before. But first, extracting who do you work for, Fargo, before he slit his throat. Yeah, yeah. So great scene, though. Yeah, no, totally. And we're not done talking about it because this not only did it uh, do in one of the characters, but it has a significant impact on a few of the others. Um, but I think it's time to move on to the king. Uh, before we do that, I want I want to talk real quickly about Lorne's plan. Okay. Because I think Lorne had a plan, you know, to blackmail the sure. king to actually get the million dollars before the king had the epiphany and buried it. Um, but numbers and wrench derail his plans here, mm-hmm. right? By taking him off the road. Mm-hmm. I think he was actually headed to that parking garage where he told them to meet him. Okay. That seems to make sense. I want to talk, I want to step back since we're talking about overarching plans. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to wonder if he didn't want to kill Sam Hess from the get go, knowing who he was to provoke some kind of shitstorm as some kind of very long term revenge. Hmm. Because these guys all kind of, if we if we buy the theory that these guys all kind of knew each other, then he had to know who that Sam Hess guy was. And certainly when he showed up into his facility, he would be aware of it. Sure. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think I need to see a little more evidence for that, maybe. I mean, it does. there's so much random things, but now that we got fish raining down the sky, I'm kind of opening up <laughs> what I consider what this show thinks is possible and what is a coincidence and what is not. Okay. So talking about the king, the king of groceries, mm-hmm. Star Starvos. 
He's sitting in front of his stained glass window featuring the patron saint of hard asses. <laughs> uh, and he's just having flashbacks of stuff we've already seen, of the semi blowing past him on the road, of him finding the case. Uh, he gets the phone call about the little boy and living in field raised in the woods by wolves. Uh, then he they're supposed to meet at the parking garage at high noon. King goes to make the drop. A couple interesting things. He goes up and pulls into this, and this is a almost shot-by-shot remake of several scenes in Fargo. Yes, which the, I loved. The garage is named after Wade Gustafsson. Which is perfect, because that's where Wade meets his end. Right, that's the father-in-law mm-hmm. of, uh, uh, of the William H. Macy character, who Jerry is... Jerry Lundegaard. yeah. Jerry Lundegaard's father-in-law... And uh, the one was being blackmailed in that, and he gets shot there, killed there. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he goes to the uh, he, he has this change of heart, uh, some sort of inspiration. Decides to leave the garage, and he has a funny little uh, um, back and forth with the parking lot attendant, where he's like, "You know, I just only I was just here." And the guy's like, "Well, yeah, uh-huh. but you still got to pay two bucks for thirty minutes." And he said, "Son, do you go to church?" <laughs> Then let me out of this goddamn garage because the Lord commands it. Yeah, I mean, one of the best lines in this episode. This guy's rich. Why doesn't he just pay the $2? I mean, obviously, it's a reference to the Fargo movie. It is, of course. This almost the exact same thing happens with Steve Buscemi. Uh, he doesn't pay it because it's, it's a principal thing. I, I'm not going to park here. I don't Plus, he's pay high it. on... He's, he's, he's tripping balls on Adderall. <laughs> That's also true, yeah. Uh, he calls up his, I thought it was his uncle, or I guess his brother. Um, maybe that's just what he calls Shemenko I don't think when he's it talking is. to Dimitri. They're both old guys with grayish white hair, but I don't think they're the same guy. I'm not willing to, because I didn't think they were the same guy. And then I'm going to stake my goddamn reputation. No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> My reputation as a podcaster of some small, re- uh, <laughs> renown. Uh, I don't know. I... I thought it was a different guy, uh, but then I started reading some comments and some reviews, and it seems like people thought it was the same, and I would buy hmm. that he would describe his chief of security as your uncle when dealing with Dimitri, who's kind of like a half-wit character anyway. Sure. Though not as half-wit as we thought after he solved the case last week and his dad just didn't listen to him. Yeah, yeah. Maybe simple-minded, but not dull-witted. Uh, he calls up at the cabin where he's been stashing him to protect his firstborn. No, uh, as if that could put him beyond the reach of the angel of death, and saying, "Hey, uh, it's uh, all done and over with, and uh, head home in about an hour." Mm-hmm. So they pack up, they're heading home as the storm of the century hits. We talked about in the the previous segment. Uh, I don't know. What do you want to talk about here? He uh, goes first and- of all. I want to know: Is the king ever going to sleep again? Is his sleep cycle permanently broken by this Adderall? I don't know. I mean, eventually you got to go to sleep or you start going crazy. And well, I think well, he's there, yeah. He's well on his way. How many days have passed? I have no idea. Three? At, at least. least? There's yeah. been at least three day-night cycles. Wow. Do you... So he goes and he buries the case. Yeah. And, and maybe even on the same spot of road, and he stakes it with a ice scraper, just like in a movie, just like he recovered it from. Mm-hmm. What is going through... His, I mean, first of all, this is the middle of a fucking blizzard that two episodes ago, the chief was saying that it might dump an, a two feet of fresh accumulation. Sure, sure. 
that, that thing's going to just be buried. That thing's just going to be buried. You're going to yeah. have to wait till the spring for it to thaw out. See, I before don't before you can see it. I don't think he wants. He doesn't necessarily care if anybody sees it. He certainly isn't going back there. This is to absolve himself of his sins. He the, thinks that these plagues are happening to him because he got this money. Does he think the phone calls from God? Because I thought that there's a legitimate blackmail attempt here. He might at this point. He might actually think that phone call was from God. He's been up so long. He's so whacked out on Adderall. He might actually think that. Hmm. Uh, but definitely, no, I, mean, I don't think he intends to find it. He's just wanting not. to put it all back the way it was and yeah. hope that this all goes away. Yep. Um, there's a lot of problems with that approach, not just from you know procedurally. You can't you can't profit from the fruits of a dishonest action and keep your empire yeah yeah. and then just give back the seed money sure if nothing else god's going to want his goddamn interest Uh and the inflation and everything else you know (laughs) and he takes a hundred percent (laughs) interest yes yes uh but uh, he drives back and simultaneously we see his son and shimanko slash uncle uh hit a a a rain of fish at the tail end of this blizzard Mm -hmm. i don't want to talk about this right now Okay. Because I want to talk a lot about it in in a future segment at the end of the cast. But the upshot is Shemanko dies, slash the uncle dies, the Shemanko, the Shmunkle. That's the upshot? You were waiting for that to happen? No, no, no. I'm just saying that at, at the end of the day, the, Sh- the Shmunkle dies, Dimitri yeah. is dead, mm-hmm. the king finds it and finds out that he can't avoid that last, that last plague. Sure. That's the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. A lot of people on Reddit notice that there is a post-it note. There's a there's a a crane shot uh, in the sky looking down as the king approaches the car, and you can see like a telephone pole broken over and mm-hmm. laying on the ground. There is a very prominent shot of a post-it note that has some writing on it that's too blurry to be seen. You can tell that it's post-it note. You can tell it's it's got writing on it. Is this going to be something that is fodder for a future flashback? Are we going to see? So, is that a clue, basically, that we're going to that, that we're going to come back to, or is this the, the prop if, department just fleshing out the world? I was I was going to say, if this is something we're coming back to, you have to believe that someone planned this and put the post-it note there, and I just can't see any way that that's possible. And I'm sure we'll talk about it more in the fish segment, but that's what you have to assume if you think that this post-it note is planted there. Or, or is going to come back in any significant fashion. Yeah, I... Because some people are wondering, because Lauren is so capable, did he actually have something to do with this fish storm? Like, did he have a, con- a high-speed <laughs> conveyor belt just like, you know, he had, spraying fish He had the spray highway. tan go around to all the pet stores, collect <laughs> all the fish. Get all the rainbow turnout, all the Dolly Partons. Certainly not. Certainly not, and we will talk more about that later. Okay, I don't think it's it's got to be a natural phenomenon, which is, I guess, the crux of my issue with it. Which again, we'll get to it later. Uh, is there anything we want to talk about the King storyline, or should we get uh, to Molly and Gus? Let's get to Molly and Gus. Okay, so you know she pulls up to Gus's house. There's a big storm hitting that's on the radio. Uh, this is all tied in here. We find that his daughter is not at home. It's just them. Uh, he tells her the story about Malvo being outside his apartment. He didn't call it in because he's all butthurt about his force not believing him 
and put him in an awkward situation. But he did call in the plates, mm-hmm. found out that it's an SUV owned by the King's Grocery Store. And uh, Molly says, well, hey, I, what I want to do is go around and follow up all these leads. And Gus goes to get dressed. Interesting, uh, Molly actually has a little a character note here where she fixes her hair up while he goes to get dressed. Did you notice that? Uh, so I noticed a couple of little things that hint at their the type of relationship that they have. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gus invites her, and he seems uh, genuinely happy sure. when she accepts his... I, I think he invites her, not the other way around, mm-hmm. uh, when she accepts his invitation uh, in a way that is more than just colleagues. Oh, no. I, yeah, I, I definitely... And then with, with the hair with Molly, it seems like she's feeling the same thing on the other side. I've thought for a long time that he's sweet on her. I wasn't sure yeah. that she was sweet on him. But I'd we have gone so little evidence is the problem. Right. I kind of gone back and forth, but her fixing her hair, you know, the fact anytime a person cares about their physical appearance around someone, it shows that they're somewhat interested in them in a, on a physical level. Yeah, yeah. Or they care what they think about their physical le- uh, level. Uh, so... I also like the conversation they had about the conversation that him and his neighbor had, the parable about the man who gave away everything mm-hmm. and was the world still was miserable. Her line about, why didn't the fella just work for a charity? <laughs> uh, You're too rational. No, too rational, Molly. But I also, and we're going to talk about the title, Burden's Ass, later on, too. I also think yeah. that that's one of the keys to understanding hmm. the, the parable that we got going on. First one in a long while that's not a... Uh, a some sort of zin cone type of uh, deal. There's another conversation that they have as well in the sure. car, the one about the rabid dog, um, and telling you know the difference between a rabid dog and a normal one. Is this in reference to Lester at this point? I mean, they're certainly going to investigate Lester. Uh, is is he the rabid dog that you can now tell from the the regular dog? Well, I think that's one of the the things is that a rabid dog you can tell from a regular dog and, and you he's can't lamenting, go back either he's lamenting that these two-faced people you can't yeah. necessarily pick him out of the crowd sure i do think he's talking about partially i mean obviously he's talking about lorne but i also think he's talking yes. about lester because that two-faced moment and then literally lester has two faces in this episode sure and this plays into the stuff we've talked about with lorne um earlier that he is kind of training lester and if lester is coming up in Lauren's image. We know that Lauren is two faced and that he can pretend to be a pastor, uh, and he can pretend he can also be this criminal. Um, Lester's developing those same traits. Is he? Tra- I don't know that you can say he's training Lester. I think that yes, that, that was, I misspoke. He's catalyzing. Yeah, he's guiding he, Lester. I don't think he cares one way or another what Lester does. It's just that maybe that's one of his things. Is he just gives these sparks the situations and this sees what happens and. Lester just happens to be a piece of dry fucking Kindle that is just going up like a house on fire. Uh, we also find in their various conversations that Gus, surprise, surprise, never even wanted to be a police officer. No. He wanted to be a postman. Sure. You ought to ask the Duluth postman how safe <laughs> that job is. Uh-huh. If you never have to deal with rabid dogs. No, no, you still have to deal with them as a postal uh, worker. Because he just wanted to see the same people every day. He wanted to give uh, people good news. He wanted to give them Christmas presents and packages they're expecting. He's got this really Pollyanna view of what it's going to be to be a postal worker. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that is interesting from an origin story for his perspective. The only reason he's a cop is because 
there was a hiring freeze at the post office and he ended up squeaking and it was, he was just as surprised as anybody to, sure. to be made into a cop. Uh, their involvement with the storm of the century is a little bit darker. They're in a cafe because they went to show up at the grocery King's groceries, uh, company. And, uh, he wasn't there obviously cause he was on his way to the parking garage. So they went to a cafe to kind of talk things out, get some coffee. Uh, they hear these shots fired from the situation going down a spray tan. They also hear shots fired from. I think that they stay. That don't uh, they get out? So this they is like just all see the, the cops same going kinda, by to respond to okay. the shootout at the house. But they walk out and they said it's like World War Three out here. And then I because think, numbers and wrench are shooting up Lorne in the street. And this, right down the road. Yeah, because Lorne hadn't gotten very far on his way to the parking garage. No. So this is literally happening kind of in the same neighborhood. Uh-huh. Uh, Molly runs off to investigate. Gus says, wait, we need to call in for backup. Kind of pointing to, we like Molly. She's definitely a better police officer than anybody else in her squad. Mm-hmm. But she's not perfect. She should have no. called in for backup. She should never gotten separated from her partner in these whiteout conditions. Yep. Uh, and it leads to her getting shot. So let's talk about that. She stag- She goes off into the the cold. Mm-hmm. We stick with Gus on his POV, and he's panic-stricken. He hears Molly say something like, police officer, stop, and then you hear several shots exchanged. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a lull, and there's a Lawrence of Arabia moment where you're kind of squinting at the screen, and you can't see if there's maybe a dark shape. He says, he screams, halt, literally Immediately fires. fires. <laughs> a half second later... And we see a shape drop. Yeah. He goes to investigate, and it's poor Molly. He shot her. Don't see any blood. There is no blood. I don't see any blood. I see a hat flap. I see a jacket flap. No blood, which to me says, I, I think we can all assume that Molly is not dead at this point. She's And, and every, every police officer passed probably 1999 wears a, some sort of bulletproof vest, which stops most small arms fire. Sure. So I think what happened here is she got shot in the vest. I think so, Probably too. Probably knocked the wind out of her or maybe knocked her unconscious Just and pain, she dropped. Because yeah. that, you know... You can crack ribs. You can severely bruise your... It, you're still getting shot. Yeah. It's just not penetrating you. Yeah, yeah. But it's going, you know, so you can, like you said, break ribs. You could pass out from the pain. There could be significant bruising. Yep. Another theory I saw was that Wrench is the guy that shot her. And she's kind of doing the the I've gotten shot stagger, and <laughs> Gus shoots at her, but completely misses. I mean, what's the odds that he's going to hit center of mass at that range in those conditions with him pissing his pants? Sure. And then I, she just drops coincidentally, good. and then late, you're, we're going to find out next episode that ballistics are going to prove that it was actually Wrench. Mm-hmm. Maybe Molly actually managed to wing Wrench as well. Yeah. It's uh, hard to say wing Wrench. Wing Wrench. We'll see. We'll see. All right. I mean, as of now, I just don't believe that she's dead. Uh, de- there's no way she can be dead. Yeah. There's only three episodes left to go, right? Yes. Or wait. Yeah, yeah. There's there's four if this was the sixth episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. Four, seven, eight, nine, ten. Because uh, I think – I don't know that this show can survive without her. She's by far the most likable character and the most uh, adept character. If she dies next episode, I have a bad feeling about anything getting resolved. Because I've seen yeah, the yeah. Duluth PD's best. <laughs> I've seen the Bemidji's finest. Yeah. They're not up to the task. 
And, well, she's from Bemidji, so no, no. she is Bemidji's finest. Oh, I guess. That's true. <laughs> but I'm saying remainder. The rest of them, yeah. The set of Bemidji's finest minus Molly. See, that's an interesting point, too, because she comes to Bill in a completely different tone this time. She understands the mistakes she's made before. She adapts to that, and she gets Bill to finally listen to her. Because she did the same thing. In the well, previous I've episode, been... you mean? Yeah, yeah. I've She's learning from her mistakes. Right on. Which shows me that she's actually good at her job, whereas these other people are not. Okay. Well, I think we're talk, uh, ready to talk about the other big deal in this episode, Lester. Okay. So Lester. So his brother stops by, accuses Lester of lying, says, uh, basically kind of disowns him, says, you're not right, you're not right with this world, and that if you want to get out of this, you need to give them somebody. Sure. He's going to give them somebody, all right. I think he meant someone more like Lorne or Wrench or Numbers. And I, when I was watching the scene and, and him jump out of bed and start this long Rube Goldberg device to get him out of the situation, I kept thinking, what if he had just come clean? It ever, I mean, at yeah. any point before he actually murdered his wife. Okay, yeah. But even after he mm-hmm. murdered his wife, if he had gone to the police when Wrench and Numbers were after him, if he had gone to the police, uh, you know, I get that him being shot in the hand is kind of a hard story to swallow, but it just contradicts mm-hmm. his testimony. And as he got bludgeoned in the head without a murder weapon, they've got nothing on him. Yeah, I, yeah, I, it's that's true. I feel like his metamorphosis into Lester might end up getting him killed because he's just not quite there yet. And also, sure, and I think the fact that he's not paying much attention to his hand is proof of that. Yeah. I also think, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. I'm not rooting for Lester Good. at all. Okay. Because I think he's, I don't know that I'm rooting for anyone other than Molly and Gus at this point. You know, I was kind of rooting for Lorne when Numbers and Wrench were after him. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, Lorne, get away from these guys. That's so another story. Though. That's that's an interesting, <laughs> that's, so that's a relative rooting. For I, I remember I had the same kind of phenomenon in season four of Breaking Bad where... Yeah, yeah. I when when it was Walt versus Gus, I was rooting for Walt. When it was Gus versus Cartel, I was rooting for Gus. Sure. It's like yeah, yeah. the enemy, my enemy, the lesser of evils. I'm not sure what exactly moral framework covers that, but yeah, I definitely. Yeah, it's the the cow versus the wolf here, <laughs> or something. <laughs> along wolf versus those lines. the tiger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're rooting for the the wolf when he's against a tiger. Sure. Who's a tiger? Tiger's I, scarier than a wolf. I've, I've lost my animal context <laughs> in here. Are we rooting for the ass? I think at this point, yeah, you have to. Because so, Lester's an ass. And what's interesting is the brother knows about this kidnapping, something that the police don't even know about at this point. He knows about Lester calling. Because he called him, yeah. Yeah. And, and he tried to play it off as a joke, but that didn't work, obviously. I wonder if that will be significant towards the end, that, you know, it looks like he's... Well, let's just talk about it. Okay. Uh, he manages to disguise himself as Mr. Creech. Mm-hmm. Uh, he keeps, again, avoiding the opportunity to do the right thing and doubling down on his on his crazy course of action. He switches place with the guy who's got his head conveniently bandaged in the bed next to him. He gets wheeled out. Uh, the, okay, you said do the right thing. There is no right thing here. He has murdered someone. No, he can go and turn himself in. Okay, yes, he could go and turn himself in, but he does that's his whole point. He doesn't want to get caught. Right. He's very He definitely did murder someone. He definitely doesn't want to get caught. It's Jerry Lundergaard all over again. 
Sure. Yeah. And I wonder if he's going to end up in a wood chipper or if he's going to end up screaming like a baby with cops dragging him out of a dirty motel room. I'm not <laughs> sure which is going to happen. All right. So uh, it's actually a quite clever escape a- a- attempt, and it goes off without a hitch. Did you? Did any part of this strain your credibility? The fact that he got out of the it, hospital or back into the hospital without being detected? It did not strain my credibility that he got out. I thought that was a very good plan. He was gone for a very long time. It strained my credibility when he got in again. Why? Because ostensibly this guy, this Mr. Creech, would have been sitting in the hall for hours no. waiting for someone to come get him for radiology. That is a little... The, it's It's basically... Do you buy in a small-town hospital that a nurse would leave this guy outside radiology for radiology to pick up? Mm-hmm, I buy that. For him to then to come out, uh, radiology come out and be like, where's my patient? Oh, well, fuck it. I'm going to go take my smoke break. Uh-huh. The nurse to be like, I wonder where it's taking radiation for so long. And then when the guy pops out back outside a radi- radiology lab for the nurse to just wheel him back uh, with no questions asked. I buy everything but the amount of time that it would have taken her to start asking questions. But how long do you like think he was radiology, gone? radiology, I think he was gone for a couple hours. Oh, I don't think so at all. I think less than an hour. Le- to how visit two do, houses. How far do you think his fucking brother he, lives from him, lives from the hospital? They're in one small town. They are, they are, but it's whiteout conditions out there. He's driving through. Not when he's first God started. knows how much snow. I know, but you have to drive slow. Uh, we know that he lives kind of in the suburbs a little bit. Um, this is fucking Bemidji, man. It could be miles between houses. I'm just saying, <laughs> I know how long it would take for me to drive from the hospital in Mooresville in to my conditions. house to your house and then back to the hospital, and I could do it in under an hour. In perfect conditions. And I don't think the storm of the century had hit. I don't even think that when he drove back, it was in full swing. It wasn't in full swing, no. So, yeah, I, don't, I, I, don't, I, I think he was gone for about an hour. Hell, maybe they did radiology on him, and mm. maybe that's going to be an interesting thing that... <laughs> You know, it's like, this guy, his skeleton's wrong. <laughs> He's uh, supposed to have his chest caved in. I don't know. I It was a little bit of a stretch for me with how long I thought he was gone. In an episode, yes. And I might have more to say, except for my mind was so blown by the fish falling from the sky. Okay. That I just didn't have a problem with it. Which we continually tease. Uh, during the hour or two or three that he was gone, he visited his house noticed uh didn't bother to get pants on any time no 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 did you notice that as he was acting in lornish type manner that he was wearing a lornish type coat yeah i saw a mention of that he's basically lorn with no pants at this point okay he's not fully dressed as lorn here bare leg lorn he's getting into his role he's half lorn half lorn half naked with his dick hanging out (laughs) uh that's about right for his character honestly Uh, he goes to his house he notices that the washer is a little even more out, you know, out of its place than it was when he left it. And uh turns out the the murder weapon is hidden behind the fish sign. Yeah. Maybe everyone else is wrong but you. Yeah, I I mean I think you know, he hid it there obviously and it's a good right. thing he did because Molly had some preternatural sense as to this washer. And it's funny. So the one thing where we're we're there's no dialogue in any of this, and we're just kind of figuring out where he goes because he goes over to a bunch of boxes, and I'm like, oh Jesus, you're not going to hide this here. That's what I thought too. But then yeah. he peels out these kind of provocative pictures of his wife. Apparently, they'd done some sexy modeling. Yep. He grabs a pair of her panties, puts the hammer in a plastic bag, and, and heads over to his brother's house. 
Now, yep. at that point, where was your mind at? Uh, I didn't know where he was going with that. I thought he was about to take off and leave town and decided to take some dirty pictures of his wife with him. See, I thought but, he was trying... But that didn't make sense because he didn't really like his wife. I thought he was going to try to do some kind of thing where going with the drifter that okay that, that this guy was some kind of pervert that had a relationship or maybe he's going to pin this on Lorne mm-hmm. and it was some kind of jealous lover angle that he didn't really know anything about. But then he goes over to his brother's house and I'm thinking he's going to get he's there for firepower, obviously. I thought so too. I thought he was picking up uh, whatever they call it, the weapon. The saw? Yeah. Uh, then he goes into the secret thing and plants the evidence in his brother's weapon, his armory. And I'm like, oh, shit, he's framing his brother. Yep. Buttons it up. And the editing, everything's leading us down the garden path. He sees the family picture and everyone's smiling there and happy. And it looks like he's got a guilty thought. And he probably does. And then he opens it up and I'm like, oh, he's, he's thought this through. No, he just gets a gun. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, okay, so he's still going to frame his brother. He felt a little guilty, but he needs a gun for protection. Me, I thought so too, yeah. But then he goes up to the kid's room and puts it in his – so, Which seeing, is a genius move because – Yeah, go ahead and talk w- about that. What I, what I and many people on Reddit think is going to happen here is he put that gun in the kid's bag knowing that the kid would take it to school. Mm-hmm. Someone would find it at school. They would call the cops, and there would be an investigation – as to how this kid, they would at least go to the house and talk to him and want to see his weapon collection, uh, find his, A, his illegal weapon yes. that he's got, yes. and B, the evidence that he just planted there. It's yes. it's the garden path to the evidence that he just planted. Yes. It makes perfect sense. It doesn't fully explain what the hell Jerry was doing uh, with the, you know, getting in the line of fire, why he had a contradictory statement to the cops, but again... Oh, oh Lester, yeah. You, oh, I'm sorry, Jerry. Uh, Lester, but you know, head trauma, et cetera. Maybe, you know, when you got this obviously smoking gun over at the brother's house and that connection, maybe there's something there. Yeah, it's really weird. I mean, how do you end up with a shotgun pellet in your hand if you are in the basement the whole time? Well, I'm not saying is that he could just be mistaken. He could say, well, maybe I wasn't in the basement the whole time. Yeah, the I, maybe, I don't remember. Maybe that the, the confrontation started up there, the, the police chief got shot. The confrontation moved down to the basement. He got bludgeoned, and he forgot the last 10, 15 minutes. That sure. happens. That's yeah, one yeah, of the, yeah. the, the drawbacks to getting con- – one of the many drawbacks to getting a concussion. <laughs> we we also noticed but, – But I just want to say that okay. seeing that family picture didn't make him guilty. It just gave him another angle for how he could screw his brother. Yeah, because it does zoom right in on the kid. Holy yeah, shit. Yeah. This guy is <laughs> full blo- – I mean – I don't know if his plotting's up to snuff, but he's full-blown evil at this point. I think so. I think you can call that evil, yeah. Making the kid an accomplice. All right. Uh, so what do you got? Uh, he puts the the gun in the Wild Thing kid's book bag. Uh, he goes downstairs. Did I interrupt a thought that you were having, by the way? Uh, yeah, no, I've lost it. It's fine. All right, great. Steamroll <laughs> it. Uh, he sees he's, The Wild Thing kid sees Lester, and since he's a weirdo, he just turns away. And Lester mm-hmm. takes off, gets back to the hospital, rewraps his head. The the nurse is like, oh, there you are, Mr. Creech. Wheels him back in. He swapperoos. Now, since no one detected that he was gone, he's got an airtight alibi. I don't even know that he needed to come back to the hospital. Yeah, of course he did. Because if he Why? just fled the scene, that's suspicious as hell. 
sure, it's suspicious, but like you said, so is the gunshot wound in the hand. They can't prove that he planted well, evidence. There's suspicious, and then there's really suspicious. I think you can have <laughs> okay. no, you can have one or two things, uh-huh. but and 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 really, if the shotgun pellet is literally the only thing, yeah, there's that's I mean that's going to get you out of probably even a trial. And there's more than enough reasonable yeah, doubt in that case, situation. It's also really curious that if he's planting this evidence, saying that his brother did it, mm-hmm. he's not saying. See, and this, this, that's the beauty of it. If the cops discover this independently, he can be as shocked as everybody. But My can God. he? But can he? Because he's in the basement unconscious. Mm-hmm. He didn't see his brother. He didn't see who attacked him. He forgot. He got a concussion. He the whole one, the, okay. whole, the whole previous day is a blur. And just sure. piece, bits and pieces. Yeah. Or he can be like, oh, my God, I do remember. My brother was there that night. There's so many ways you can play that. I guess so. Whether he can yeah. pull off a lie of that scale, who We knows? certainly know he couldn't at the beginning. I mean, his salesmanship was fucking horrendous. No. Uh, now he's turning into a little bit uh, more more of a con artist. What do you think of that quiet smile at the end? At there? the very end? Uh, I, he's very pleased with himself. And that to me, really indicates how much he is becoming a wolf. It really, to me, says that there's no... Him being this smug and self-confident, there's no way he gets away with this. (laughs) Right, yeah. I'm giving him a 10% chance of getting away with this, a 50% chance of dying before the end of this story is told. Okay. I mean, a couple of ways he could get caught um, sneaking out of this thing. A, like you said, the kid in the house saw him. B, how out of it is Mr. Creech? Is he completely out of it? Could he, after he gets his radiology scan, come back and say, hey, I got boondoggled by this guy? Because he wasn't entirely unconscious throughout that. I just used boondoggled in an incorrect way, and people from Minnesota are just going to jump all over me. (laughs) Uh, I understand that. He got shenaniganed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he got some shenanigans pulled on him. So maybe he spills the beans, maybe the kid does. Mm. There are still some loose ends here. That okay. he has, that I don't think he cares about. He's certainly got to recognize them, but I don't think he cares. All right. So next, I want to talk about Burden's ass. I want to talk about this fish miracle. Okay. I yeah. just kind of kind of want to wrap up some loose ends of our own. Sounds good. So the title of this episode, Burden's Ass. My understanding, I didn't take philosophy is that this is a... It's named after a French philosopher, Jean Buridan. That's proper pronunciation, the French pronunciation. I don't know. I, I kind of tried. I actually looked it up knowing. It's like, oh, shit, this is a French guy. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm fucked. It's Buridan, you know. Yeah, um, I don't know how to say it. But it's, it's, it's made as a kind of satire of his moral deterministic philosophy and some of the conundrums that you can get yourself in talking about his framework of free will. For example, this one in particular is imagine a ass, a donkey. Oh. For those of you oh, that are okay. giggling right now and are in sixth grade. Me. Uh, that he's equally hungry, he's equally thirsty. An equally hungry ass. Okay. Equally And equally thirsty. And equally thirsty. And then equal distantly from him is placed a pail of water and a bale of hay. Which way is he facing? Uh, he's, 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 imagine it's a triangle. Okay, so he's at one. Okay, end. It's, a, All right. it's an equilateral triangle, and he's at one peak point, and then the pail of water and the bale of hay are at the other. Okay, got it. Which the the this paradox goes that the donkey would just starve uh, or dehydrate himself to death because 
if one he would make some kind of form of determination to move towards one or the other based on which was closer to him, which was more expedient. And since they're equal to him, he's kind of like locked in this. Well, it's a paradox, locked in this paradox, and he dies. Okay. This is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. I feel like Molly, why doesn't he just, you know, stagger towards one and see which one he... I mean, you gotta take I think a, he would go to whichever one he felt like going to. Yeah. Like, okay, he's equally hungry and equally thirsty, but that doesn't mean he doesn't want the other, or, or he's not gonna just, like, pick one and go. Right. I mean... I've been in situations where I'm hungry and thirsty. I, I could figure out which one to do. So, but that's a key difference. I, I think that you've got a, that's why it's an ass, not a human, because a human would probably, you know, he's like, fuck it. I'm going to go towards and I'm going to drink and then I'm going to wolf down the hay and then I'm going to go drink some more. Or sure. I'm going to carry I, the bucket over to the hay and do both kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm playing dumb here. Obviously, this is not a realistic scenario in right. any fashion. It's meant to serve a, a point. Right. But there are people that argue it as if it is a realistic scenario. And I was reading the Wikipedia article, which seems like it's 10 pages longer than it needs to be. Okay. Uh, it seems like it should be one page. This is something making fun of another person, and it's stupid. It's, it's is... essentially being between a rock and a hard place, right? Okay, sure. It's it's similar. Who's Burden's ass in this episode? I really don't know. I really don't know because it seems like everybody takes action. I, I would say Lester is getting uh, pulled in two directions, but he takes action. I got two thoughts. Okay. Lester's Burden's ass. He's paralyzed between two unequal or equally unappetizing things, going to jail Mm-hmm. Or you know some other thing, and he decides to take this third path, which is or I mean I guess in if he was truly Lorne, he'd go probably kill Lorne. If he was a, a Lorne disciple, he'd go kill Lorne, or he'd take care of you know he'd be the ape and remind everybody he's not to be fucked with, and go on rocking it with his bad self, sure, uh, as an outlaw renegade. Uh, if he was Lester Nygaard, he would just go to the cops and be like, this is fucked up, you know, throw myself at your mercy, whatever. He goes a third path, which is the weasel path, and frames his brother. Yeah, I guess I view Lester's dilemma a little differently. It's not being stuck between Lorne and law enforcement. It's uh-huh. not, those are not the two equal distant things from him. Right. It's being caught versus not being caught. Hmm. And he takes the path of not being caught. Okay. Like being caught versus coming clean. Right. He goes toward not getting caught, but more down the path of potentially getting caught. What about... He does take action. I don't I don't see how it's arguable that he doesn't take action. No, here. no, no. He's, he's, burden, he's been put in this Burden's ass situation. And but, he gets himself out of it. But the, it's, it's observing what Burden's ass actually does. Okay. Uh, another one, more maybe literal, would be spray tan. Okay. He is literally caught in a situation where there are no good options left. And it's too late for him to make those options. And he is paralyzed, literally... Mm-hmm. Can't alter his fate and ends up dying. Is he is he the burden's ass in this situation? He's caught between. Uh, he's equally distant between his Turkish spa <laughs> and uh, his life, freedom from Lorne. Uh, yeah, I mean he could be viewed as that certainly. 
I think he's the only one who's unable to take action. Right. And perishes as a result. Right. And again, the whole idea of this this ass being paralyzed by I mean, in this case he's paralyzed by the two choices he had. This guy's paralyzed by the fact he has no choices. Mm-hmm. That's the the two that jumped out. I don't know if you had I try to thought it's like, you know, how could Lorne be Burden's ass? Is he caught between wrench and numbers, or is he caught between the law enforcement and and wrench and numbers, or is he caught between his desire to get this million dollars and maybe perhaps some kind of long term revenge on the grocery king and his desire to remain free and alive and trying to split the middle gets him in trouble. I don't, none of those really. I mean, maybe Gus, Gus is kind of, you know, caught between being a police officer and being a, a postal, postal worker. worker. Yeah, essentially. And, and his choice is terrible. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I honestly didn't have a clue coming into this how that relates to the episode. All right, well, let's talk about the fish. Yes. I have a huge problem with this fish. Now, before I start, I know that supernatural endings are somewhat within the Coen brothers' wheelhouse, okay? Sure. Like, you know, Hudsucker Proxy has a deus ex machina ending. Um, There is supernatural characters in various of their other works. You know, Eric talked about the unstoppable evil force. However, I don't. It's true that it's within their their wheelhouse, but you don't have an act of God in Fargo. Sure, you know when they go for the gritty realist stuff, they don't usually have the silly kind of like, "Well, fuck you" type ending, or just have God or some kind of supernatural element interfere. In fact, a lot of people say, well, you know, Anton Sugar is supposed to be some kind of grim reaper supernatural, but he's not. He's mortal. He can get in a car crash. He can get in ble- he can bleed. Yep. Uh, things happen to him. Not everything's under his control. This fish situation, well, what do you think about it? Because you don't seem like to be nearly as, as, as bothered by it by him. So this kind of plays into the Ten Plagues theme a little bit. Um, when the Nile, according to the Bible, when the Nile was turned to blood, there were... A lot of dead fish washing up on shore, like you would like you would think. Um, so you could see them falling from the sky here, kind of playing into that. Uh, yes, it was something that I did not expect to happen and something that kind of said, like, what the fuck sort of moment. But I didn't have nearly the problem because it doesn't ultimately matter that much. I mean, they could have just as easily, and maybe that's your big problem with it, is that it didn't have to happen they could have easily just driven off the road in the shitty snowstorm that was happening. It's similar to my, if you're a long-term listener to us and participant in our discussions, you know that I think the worst thing the Breaking Bad ever did was the 737 down over ABQ storyline. Because it took a story that was already interesting and gripping and had a lot of pathos into it, and it stacked up a bunch of like i know that sometimes airliners collide mm-hmm. i don't think major giant airlines collide over you know heavily patrolled and trafficked united states soil i mean that's, that's shit's happened in brazil and other places with smaller aircraft but fine whatever it can happen it doesn't happen over the fucking protagonist antagonist's house and land in his swimming pool while he's in sure. the middle of this moral morass slash crisis thing. And we do know that, you know, you can have a fish NATO. You can have 
It has happened in many places, yes. Australia, Sri Lanka, U.S. even. You have a tornado or a strong updraft or any mm-hmm. kind of severe storm, which this would, would fit the bill. I don't have a problem. I mean, the fish may be a little bit big, yeah. but that it's, that's not the problem. The fact that this happens at the exact moment where his son and, and his schmuckle is driving home Mm-hmm. And and happens right as he's having this change of heart and he's having this biblical extortion event happening to him. Yeah. It's just either supernatural, which mm-hmm. I don't think fits in this story. I don't think it is. I think it's just poetic. You say poetic. I say coincidence that beggars the fucking imagination. I just... I, I, it's hard for me to accept that all these things came together. And again, it's really frustrating because I don't think we needed it. Like sure. you said, we could have had uh, the snowstorm of the century, and this could have been a story about Pharaoh. A wolf could have jumped out in front of the car. That would have been. That would have been. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, to me, even if you go to the biblical story, it's about Pharaoh's arrogance. Yeah, yeah. And his intractability. This could have been about the kings, the grocery store kings' arrogance and. Uh, his not thinking about seeing his firstborn son home in a blizzard, and it could be a something that he kind of manufactured himself. It didn't need the hand of God. Well, that didn't ever that part didn't factor into his decisions or anything like that. I mean, it is what killed his son ultimately. Yeah. Um. But if you can get past the idea that this is like some supernatural thing. That's happening. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Like, it certainly isn't a series ruiner for me. So, like, if Breaking Bad had stopped at the end of season two, I don't think I would be talking about Breaking Bad being in the Pantheon. Not the least of which the first two seasons are not when it really hit its stride. I mean, there's great stuff in the first two seasons, but season three, season four, five, and six are why we all say it's right up there at the greatest television. Sure. Uh, But... I I don't know, man. I they've got three or four episodes left here, and again, I'm reserving judgment. I'm not saying this is ruining the series for me yet. I'm just saying uh, okay. that this is a huge black eye that doesn't make sense, and it's something. It's a self inflicted gunshot wound from the showrunners and the writers. I think it's them taking poetic license with filmmaking, uh, you know, playing out the the tenth plague in the way that they wanted to play it out. And yeah, maybe it doesn't satisfy everybody. Maybe it makes a few people mad. What but are the odds? I, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. When, when you talk about poetry in film, you talk about the art of filmmaking, it doesn't fucking matter what the odds of something happening are. Like, okay, maybe we're talking about a different type of show now. Maybe you thought you were watching one show, yes. but it's another show. Right. It's the type of show that I wouldn't invest a lot of time and effort into. Seriously? You've never watched anything that's artistic? In, in no, a this is artistic. Kind of... This is me just getting about punch you in the face. No, and then we'll not. just go on with the rest of the podcast. I and completely it didn't ruin disagree. The podcast. Completely disagree. And to say that a ten second scene out of what ten hours it? of television ruins a season, ruins a series, is crazy to me. What motivates it? Because if it that's the thing that wrote, it's it's a completely unmotivated act of God. It's, which again, it's not I'm... an act of God. There's a storm going on. It can happen. It's just. It's something weird that happens. Sure, I get it. Maybe you don't like it, but I don't think it ruins the series. I don't know. It's it's something that can and does happen. It's the same thing like if the blood in the... If, if, if his shower just turned to blood miraculously, 
It'd have been a, no, it'd been no, bullshit. because showers don't turn to blood miraculously. Fish do fall out of the sky. I don't know. I mean, I guess you're right, but to me, it is again a a bridge too far that they didn't have to build in the first place. Okay, I mean. I'm I'm with you. It felt weird, and I was and, like, "What the fuck is happening?" When it happened, and it's funny because I I I'm actually again I want to see how the rest of the series plays out before I get my pitchforks out. This is just that my first thought was, "What the fuck did I just see?" Sure. And why did they do it? Yeah. And it's I I think it's less poetic to be that literal about your goddamn theme that literally an act of God killed your firstborn son when there is okay other ways I think it'd be more palatable for me. And I'd enjoy more. But that's, again, that's just me. Uh, anything else we need to talk about? I don't think so. Not with the fish. All right, let's move on to the feedback. But first, let's do a little bit of pimping. If you like our Fargo show, if you like our 24 podcast, if you like our Game of Thrones podcast, or Mad Men, or Breaking Bad, Walking Dead, all that stuff, uh, please consider supporting us. Go to baldmove.com, click on the support icon at the top, uh, on the top uh, menu bar, It'll take you to a bunch of different ways that you can support us. Many of them that don't cost you a thing. For example, Amazon. Do you shop online? If you go to amazon.baldmove.com, every time you buy something with Amazon, we get a tiny cut out of Jeff Bezos' profit. It doesn't cost you anything. There's not an extra shipping fee. There's not an extra handling fee. It just takes a little bit of your sales and gives it to Bald Move. And we uh, turn that money into podcasts. It's the circle of life. It's literally literally what we do. Literally do, yeah. Uh, and it's not just us. Uh, please go to baldmove.com to check out all of our fantastic affiliates. You know them, Personal Arrogance, The Because Show, Up Yours Downstairs, it's Kelly and Tom. Uh, there's so much. We're just literally drowning people in content. And uh, show us a little love. Show us a little support. Let's get into feedback. Okay. Uh, first up, we've got something from Tony. He says, I'm enjoying Fargo thus far, but one thing is bugging me. Why couldn't Lester simply talk his way out of the questioning? The shotgun pellet hit him in the back of his hand. Clearly, he didn't fire the shot. The police can't know the sequence of events and how they unfolded in the house. He's the only surviving witness. He could play the drifter angle, armed robbery with a shotgun. The police chief stops by. The thief panics. He shoots the chief, herds Lester and a wife in the basement, kills her with the hammer. Here's the cops coming outside, leaving Lester only unconscious, uh, and the man leaves in in a hurry. The only missing piece is the phone call to the motel, but Lester has no need to explain it as a victim in the story, and anyway, will only serve to implicate Malvo. Maybe there's something I missed, but it is annoying. Um, what do you think? It's always been set up as Shooter was upstairs, Lester was downstairs, right? right. That's always been the reason that the wound is a problem and that the pellet in his hand is an issue. Uh I mean, if we want to use the deus ex machina of I got hit in the head, then he could really explain all of that away, sure. But that's not deus ex machina. That's actually shit that, you know, did happen. But it is as far as his story goes. It's like... And he did it to himself. But it's also something that you happen... Yeah, I mean, he ran himself into the wall. Oh, yeah. Gave himself a concussion. Sure, but if you don't know that, as the police wouldn't. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of my, my problem, but I think it's a conscious choice for him to continue to try to be the big badass ape. And this is a hole that he's digging himself into. So it's not, I don't think it's not possible for him to do that. I just think that this is a conscious choice of him not doing it. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, and also, yeah, we didn't talk about the phone call to the motel. That is another big coincidence. 
Like, mm-hmm. why would you? And and how oh. does that tie into the brother? Here, here's the other big outstanding piece of shit that's going to drop on Lester. Yeah, the phone call was recorded. Well, sure. <laughs> Lauren sure. has a tape of that. They so have to get Lauren first. They have to get Lauren first, but if he turns Lauren in... He doesn't know they know about the phone call either, do they? I don't think so, no. I can't remember because I, I make a statement like that, and then maybe that's something that Molly has asked him. Yeah, I I don't think she asked him that. I think I she think wanted led... to, that he was pretending yeah. he's playing possum at the hotel. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway. At the hospital, yeah. So this might be something smug that he thinks he's going to pin this on his brother, but there's still a bunch of things that don't make sense. Sure. Uh, Tony also is from Italy. He speaks Italian, and he has a translation of the song that played over the credits. Okay. It says, Little one, do you really want to dance to Charleston? There's the father who dances it like a champion and knows it. Little one, the father will give you lessons, but he doesn't want to learn your rock and roll. Look at him, inebriated by the old Charleston. The father already feels the force of a lion. Little one, give him a bite of happiness. Little one, let the father dance. Hmm. Uh, he also says that the rest of the song then repeats the same thing, but then with the uh, song sung by a female vocal instead of male vocal. His take on this hmm. is that the piccola, uh, which is the uh, uh, is is um, Lester, who yeah. is in this episode displayed a few of Malvo's traits: his ingenuity and uh, engineering the hospital escape, the sweeping of his hair to attempt to disguise his identity. Uh, while Malvo truly dances to Charleston like a champion and knows it. Hmm. Okay. I like that take. I didn't even know what the song meant until he translated, so I'm going to go with his his take on that. It seems plausible to me. Sure. I like it. Uh, Nick P. says, Hey, he's listened to your Six Ungraspables episode, and you guys were pointing out how Grimley's Jewish neighbor's Perils of the Rich Man story seemed to be pointless and necessary. I don't know that I was that hard on it, but sure. <laughs> When I watched the scene, I immediately thought of the Goy's Teeth scene in the Coen Brothers' 2009 movie, A Serious Man. It's one of their lesser-known films, but it's slowly eating up or easing up on my list of favorite Coen Brothers flicks. Hmm. In this scene, the film's protagonist goes to see a rabbi for some much-needed advice, and the rabbi tells a really pointless but elaborate story about a dentist whom sees visions in the patient's teeth. As the rabbi narrates, the whole story is painstakingly reenacted with different actors and sets, The scene is kind of intense and stoic, as if it's going to pay off with loads of wisdom. It's even edited and synced with a really cool Jimi Hendrix song. The whole flashback reenactment plays out in great detail, with absolutely no payoff in the end. The protagonist loses his patience, and he asks the rabbi what the story even has to do with the situation. The rabbi then realizes that he has no connection whatsoever, and he just ends the sentence, the session, with even a more ponderous question. It's a hilarious scene. If you haven't seen it, then you're missing out on the Coen's Brothers' gym. It stars Michael Stuhlbarg. I, I don't know. Okay. I, I probably butchered his name. Who plays Arnold Rothstein on a Boardwalk Empire? Huge oh, okay. fan. Yeah. Give it a look. See, it's great. Um, that so that I thought it was ballsy of the show to spend that much time on a parable that had dubious utility to the rest of the plot. Mm-hmm. I think, but I think it was interesting. It was absorbing in the kind of the Godfather sense of the word, where you, it was just kind of fascinating to watch him commit to that idea. Yeah, yeah. the fact that it's aping another Coen Brothers film just makes it all that much sweeter. Sure, in my I like opinion. It. Uh, that's all the feedback we have this week. I feel like I might have accidentally chopped one when I was uh, doing my notes. If if so, I apologize. Oh, lots of we actually have a surprising amount of Mormons listening to the podcast, Jim. 
Oh, and okay. They're telling me about all the different ins and outs of Mormon law as it, as it uh, <laughs> relates to caffeine. One sent me a link from 2012 that said that the the high mucky mucks of the Mormons clarified that it's only hot drinks. Oh, okay. Tea and coffee. What about iced coffee? I was wanting the same thing. Is iced tea <laughs> fine? Is is iced coffee fine? Uh-huh. But clearly Cokes and all that stuff, it's not caffeine. It's it's alcohol and tobacco and hot drinks. Huh. So, hot, all hot drinks or just hot caffeinated drinks? It, the, the, the holy book says hot drinks. Interesting. If you pour... If you pour tomato soup in a mug, and oh, okay, is that a now prohibited hot drink? But if you pour it in a bowl, is that okay? <laughs> Finding out where the letter of the law begins. And How the many Campbell's ends. kids can dance on the head of a pin is I what I want to know. Anyway, uh, enough to drink a full bowl of tomato soup. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're just going to get this many more responses about our soup question, <laughs> yeah. and this is just going to turn into the Mormon Hour. We'll have to do Jim a spin-off A-Rod. podcast. Yeah, there we go. We can we can swap uh, Mormon and Jehovah's Witness stories. We can we can call it breaking the Mormon law, and we try to find the loopholes <laughs> in Mormon doctrine. If you drink the soup from the mug with a straw. <laughs> All right, uh, that's all we got. If you'd like to send us more feedback, do so at Fargo at BaldMove.com. Of course, you can join our open threads, which are starting to become, they're threatening to rock. They're not quite rocking mm. the way some of our other shows do, but they, they definitely have the rocking look in their eye. Facebook.com slash BaldMove. Of course, you can tweet whatever is on your mind at Jim at all times on Twitter.com at BaldMove. That's all I got. Another great week on Fargo. A little sour note on the fish. Jim's eating it up like sushi. <laughs> We'll see how they do next week. Uh, Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See you then.